The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So just at the beginning, you saw a few little movements, but not a lot. But a lot of these oligarchs stayed you know, they were not under sanction for a long time. So like I said, Solaris was was here and running sea trials, even though Abramovich was one of the biggest names that people were talking about. The yacht was still here and, and people were doing the service on it and it was sort of doing its thing. After the sanctions started coming down, then we saw a few seizures, a few detainments, but it wasn't super fast. Italy definitely was the fastest they took three in a very short amount of time. And then Spain really sped it up. And once they started this week, they took uh, three, like within a matter of days. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 21st, 2022. Alex Finley is a former officer of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, and now is a novelist and a writer. But most recently, Alex has taken up a different task. She is the leader of Hashtag Yacht Watch, an effort to track down and monitor the movements of massive yachts belonging to Russian oligarchs. Yacht Watch has become one of the fixtures of my Twitter feed and a popular way of following and staying engaged with the fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I talked to Alex about Yacht Watch, how she conducts the project, and what its value is in an oversaturated media ecosystem. Just a note that we recorded this conversation last Thursday, and there have been a few small developments that have occurred in the interim. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 21st, Tracking Russian Oligarch Yachts. So Alex, I think the best place to start here is what on earth is Yacht Watch? Uh, Yacht Watch is a hashtag that took over on Twitter that I started out when when I first started sort of looking at the oligarchs' yachts. I started Yacht Watch to see where they are, what the status was, um, where they're located, who they belong to, all that kind of thing. And so, give us a sense of when, like, when exactly you started this project, and what, like, what was the impetus for starting? So everybody seems to think this was a very organized thing on my part. It wasn't. So I I was researching oligarch yachts for my upcoming third novel, which is coming soon. And um, I had covered the, the uh, Russian investigation in the United States. I had become pretty 
well-versed in Russian influence operations and I speak on, on the topic and I teach courses on the topic. And the oligarchs, of course, are part of that. So I had been watching the oligarchs. And like I said, I had been researching their yachts for my book. And as it started to become clear to me that this invasion was going to happen and that sanctions on the oligarchs were very likely going to be a result, I started just watching a little bit more closely. But I I live in Barcelona and the port here is full of luxury yachts, not just Russian, but everybody. And in fact, Dilbar, which is one of the biggest yachts, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, is quite often uh, docked here in the in the port. And she's enormous. She's the largest privately owned yacht in the world. So it's hard to miss her. And so I had become, you know, I had become familiar with these yachts. And even before Yacht Watch started, I had given a few sort of Twitter tours of the port where I would just walk around the port, take pictures of the enormous boats, uh, do a quick little search to give some interesting facts about each yacht and usually uh, provide a snide or sarcastic comment to go with it. So that's, like I said, I had been pretty familiar with a lot of the yachts that were already here in Barcelona, and by chance, a number of them are Russian oligarchs. Yeah, and maybe just to, before we move forward, just to concretize exactly what you're talking about, maybe describe in some detail what one of these huge yachts looks like, just so everyone knows what exactly we're talking about. Okay, so Dilbar is... I would have to double check, but I think she's over 500 feet long. So longer than an American football field. By gross tonnage, she is the largest yacht in the world, almost 16,000 gross tons. So if you look at her and you don't know exactly, you don't know that she's privately owned, you might think that she is a small cruise ship, for example. But she's a very different style than a cruise ship because she looks like a luxury yacht. To me, she looks like a giant bathtub, but it's just not my taste. These are very large, ostentatious, big boats. <laughs> Dilbar, when she was here, she does, she's not coming back here to Barcelona anytime soon. But when she was here, she was bigger than the aquarium. And now that she's gone, you have three yachts taking up the space that she used to take. And they're not small yachts. You would look at them and still think these are big yachts. So yeah, enormous. And so is is Barcelona unique in its in its popularity among Russian oligarchs for a yacht docking station, or is it is it the case that as you you know the more you've learned about this stuff, like all throughout different ports of Europe, there are these huge mega yachts owned by Russian oligarchs? So I don't think that the Russian oligarchs were coming to Barcelona to enjoy Barcelona. I think the crews bring the yachts here because we have Marina Barcelona 92, more commonly known as MB 92, which is one of the few shipyards in the world that is capable of handling super luxury yachts. So all of the big yachts come here. MB 92 also has a, a branch in La Ciotat, France. And that's where one of the other yachts of Mordevero was taken or seized or detained. So um, I think the issue here in Barcelona is more just because the shipyard is here. These yachts require a lot of maintenance and upkeep and those services are, are here. So I don't think it's that the oligarchs are running around Barcelona having a good time here. They tend to take their boats and go to places like Monaco or Antibes or Saint-Tropez. 
So I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about what the process is for piecing together the movements of the yachts, like figuring out who owns them, stuff like that. Just talk through a bit of your sort of open source Intel process for figuring this out. Well, like I said, I knew that some of the yachts were Russian owned here simply because people talk, right? When you're in a place and you're actually on the ground and you talk to locals and you talk to shop owners or whatever, you can, you know, you start to get a little bit of information that way. So I had a good idea of the ones that were here that were Russian. Then, you know, there was just some research going on online and other people sort of throwing different yacht names out there and uh, trying to figure out who we think the owners are. We still, on most of these, these are reported owners. We, you know, we don't have confirmation, although now that a number of them have been detained by government authorities, we figure the, the government knows who the beneficial owners are. So it was kind of just jumping around and figuring out, you know, what, what, what oligarchs there are and, and which yachts are theirs. And that's just a lot of poking around to try to figure it out. And I would even do things, for example, here in Barcelona, I would pull up on marine traffic and I could see all of the yachts that were down in the port and pull up the name and then just start doing some online research to say, okay, who, who does this yacht possibly belong to? And what are people saying about the yacht? And like I said, we have a lot of other luxury yachts here. So I, Barry Diller's yacht is here. Nancy Walton from Walmart, her yacht is here. Alraya, which supposedly belongs to the, um, the Royal family of Bahrain, and so you also get a sense of style. The more that you look at these boats, you 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 can sometimes sort of take a bet, like, oh, is the, you think that one is Russian-owned, or you think that's owned by somebody in the Middle East, or is that more like an American billionaire? And now you have some Chinese billionaires entering the game. So you can get a little bit of an idea from the style of the boats, what the owners, you know, where they might be from. I, I gather that like a big component of this project since the war in Ukraine really started in earnest has been tracking the movements of the yachts, right? So talk a bit more about like, where do you find the the data? How can you sort of piece together where they're traveling and, and stuff like that? So mostly I use marine traffic and vessel finder, which anybody can use. You can go online and just type in the name of a yacht or any vessel and you can see where it is, or at least where it last pinged. These yachts all have what's called AIS, which is a tracking system. And they ping onto places on land, and sometimes they ping up to satellites, and you can get a, an idea of where they're located and therefore where they're where they're heading. So I've just been keeping up with them on on marine traffic. A number of them are still here in Europe. A number of the ones that have stayed here in Europe have now been detained, and the ones that managed to flee are either still on the move, so we're not sure where they are or where they're going. We might know where they are, but not where they're going. Others have sort of gathered around the Seychelles and the Maldives, and others, uh, some others are in Dubai, and others have just sort of stopped pinging. So if the tracking system has not pinged in a number of days, that starts to be a little bit suspicious that perhaps they've turned off their tracking system and they don't want to be found. Maybe let's pick a specific ship as a case study and talk through, you know, since all this has begun, what what's a ship whose who sort of movements or patterns has felt particularly interesting to you and 
know, to the extent that anything's representative, like representative of, of what's going on here. Well, I've been watching Solaris a lot just because she, she became my white whale because I had gone down to the port here one day and Solaris was in the shipyard. So she is one of Roman Abramovich's yachts. She is worth around $600 million reportedly. And she is also reportedly one of the most technologically advanced with an anti-missile defense system and all of the bells and whistles that any oligarch could imagine. And she's kind of a strange shape. She's very front heavy with a very large beach club, as they call it, at the back. So the back of the yacht is much flatter and much more open space. Uh, she has a helicopter pad and, like I said, all of this sort of regular accoutrements that uh, your rich oligarch would want. And she was here in MB92 for weeks. She's a brand new ship. I believe she was delivered just a few months ago. I, by chance, went down to the port one day and she was out running sea trials. And I was wondering, actually, as I was watching her, if she was about to head east and, and get the heck out of European waters. And she didn't. She stayed here for a little bit longer. I think they still had to finish her up be before she would be fully seaworthy. But um, she then left port on a Tuesday afternoon. And Thursday morning, Abramovich was sanctioned by the UK. So that was very lucky timing that they got the boat out when they did. And so I've been watching Solaris and she headed east. She went to Montenegro, we think probably to refuel. At the time, Abramovich was still under only UK sanctions. And Montenegro is not part of the EU yet, but has said that they will support and um, enforce EU sanctions. But Solaris was in Montenegro before Abramovich was sanctioned by the EU. So it looks like the yacht was at least able to refuel and resupply. And uh, since then, Solaris left Montenegro, the EU sanctioned Abramovich, and now Solaris is heading south and waiting to see if she will take a turn east and head towards Turkey, as some reports have surmised, or if she will continue heading south through Suez and maybe into the Indian Ocean. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you've alluded to this in a few of your answers in, in passing, but I wonder if you could spell out a bit more directly, what's the connection between the war starting in Ukraine, sanctions being unveiled against an increasing number of Russian oligarchs, and the sort of movement rapid movement of these yachts? Like, how do those three things relate to each other? 
So the oligarchs are central to Putin's war in Ukraine, but also to his his war against the West in general, I would say. So the oligarchs have played a central role in supporting him and helping to keep him in power. They've also played a central role in his destabilization activities against the West. At the same time, they have taken full advantage of the West. They live here quite a bit. They spend their money here. They invest their money here. So Russia is a great place to make money if you are an oligarch. But when it comes time to spend it or invest it, you want to put it someplace much safer that has the rule of law. And that's what the West is. So the oligarchs have been playing this sort of dual game where they're supporting Putin and helping him uh, destabilize the West while at the same time taking full advantage of the West. So sanctioning them was was pretty clear that that was going to be part of the policy in terms of putting pressure on Putin. And so how do you sanction them? And one of the things to do is to sanction their assets. Uh, One, because it might help Uh, to get them to influence Putin, which is part of the idea, I think, behind the sanctions. They have his ear. They are in the room with him. Uh, When the invasion started, a number of these men were called back to meet directly with Putin. And so I think the thinking is these are people who can influence Putin or who may be able to have influence on people inside Russia who might be able to find an out for Putin or, you know, a palace coup or, or who knows, but these are people who, who wield a certain amount of power in Russia. The other side of the sanctions, however, is that these men, the oligarchs are Putin's wallet. So a lot of the money that's being held in the yachts or in real estate or in bank accounts or whatever other assets, some of it is probably Putin's money. And we've seen even with some of the yachts, there's two yachts that are questioned, Sherazad, which is in Italy, and Crescent, which is here in Spain, just south of Barcelona. Uh, And the Spanish authorities actually detained Crescent uh, just yesterday. And there's questions if these yachts maybe belong to Putin. So they, they seem to have other names associated with them and other management companies that are associated with them. But in, you know, is the ultimate beneficial owner or the ultimate user of these yachts, Putin himself. And that may be the case, not just with the yachts, but with plenty of other assets. So part of the sanctions also is sort of attacking Putin's personal wallet. When these ships do, to the extent that they get seized, arrested, what are the legal authorities on which they're, under which they're seized and who is doing the seizing? So the legal authorities, well, that's that's a very legal question. I'm not sure what the legal authorities are. The, 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 the EU and the US have actually passed down these sanctions. So now you had the Ministry of Transport. So here in Spain, for example, the prime minister gave the order for the Ministry of Transport to go in and detain the yachts that have been detained here. Practically on the ground, nothing has happened to these yachts. They're, they're, they're sitting and floating exactly where they were. They don't have chains wrapped around their propellers to prevent them from going anywhere. They, they are where they were yesterday. They're just floating there. But in order for those yachts to leave, 
any crew would have to get permission from customs. The, the yacht would have to get permission from the port authority, those types of things uh, to be able to, to leave. And those permissions will not be given. There's questions now still for the shipyard, however. Again, most of these yachts that have been detained so far are in shipyards, so they're not like in a city port. They're in a private shipyard because they were being serviced. And so now we, we don't know now what happens with these shipyards. You know, you have a 500-foot yacht <laughs> taking up a lot of space, and now the owner can't pay you, and nobody is allowed to do work on the yacht. Dilbar, for example, which we talked about before, um, is in dry dock in Hamburg in the Lursen shipyard. And I, as I understand it, Lursen has a crew now of just five people that are sort of going on to do the minimum, you know, the minimal maintenance and service that they have to do to, to keep the ship sort of alive. But that's it. But, you know, but it's taking up all of this space that could be taken by a paying client. And so for the shipyards, it's pretty difficult too. And what happens after this, we don't know. It seems that the authorities have permission to hold them as long as sanctions are in place. And the next step now will be confirming the ownership and confirming that it really is uh, these particular oligarchs that we believe are the beneficial owners. By the time this podcast airs, it'll be, I think, more than three weeks since the start of the invasion of Ukraine. How has this unfolded over time, right? Has it really accelerated and paced the movement of the yachts and the seizures of the yachts as as time has elapsed? Or has it sort of been the case that there was like a peak moment where a lot of things were happening and it's more reaching stasis at this point? Yeah, it, it started a little bit slowly. When the, the talk of sanctions first came up, you saw a little bit of movement with the yachts. There was one here, Galactica Supernova, which left just before the invasion, I think, or or just after, but like before there were any sanctions out, Galactica Supernova had like hightailed it out the same time that Graceful, which is thought to be one of Putin's yachts, uh, made a very quick escape out of the shipyard in Hamburg and into Kaliningrad, safe Russian waters. So just at the beginning, you saw a few little movements, but not a lot, but a lot of these oligarchs stayed you know, they were not under sanction for a long time. So like I said, Solaris was was here and running sea trials, even though Abramovich was one of the biggest names that people were talking about. The yacht was still here and, and people were doing the service on it and it was sort of doing its thing. After the sanctions started coming down, then we saw a few seizures, a few detainments, but it wasn't super fast. Italy definitely was the fastest. They took three in a very short amount of time. And then Spain really sped it up. And once they started this week, they took uh, three, like within a matter of days. So what are you, like, have you been surprised by the reception that this has gotten? I see, you know, Yacht Watch coming up on my Twitter feed from from people having no apparent connection to you, right? It, it does really seem like it's become an object of, of somewhat fascination. I'm, I'm curious, like, what you make of that? Like, how do you why do you think this has been resonating with so many people? Is it sort of an interest in figuring out more stuff about the sort of hidden world of Russian oligarchs? Is it just, you know, people are interested in any sort of information? Is it that yachts are really cool? What's your sense of why this has, has really resonated with so many people? I think there's a few things. 
uh, one, which one of my followers and apologies, cause I don't remember, uh, the Twitter handle, but one of them said that yacht watch had become sort of a combination of the hunt for red October with the amazing race. And I think, <laughs> I think that's kind of a fun description of it. Uh, so I, I think it resonates with people in one sense because they feel they can, they can participate. We've, I've had plenty of people, you know, sending me tweets, capture, you know, caught a photo of this one, or uh, we think this one might also be a Russian yacht, that kind of thing. So it's something you can crowdsource. And so people feel that they can contribute. I think also it's, there's a certain amount, as I've said, of schadenfreude. A lot of people like to see rich people lose their toys. But I think that that emotion is heightened because of why these people are losing their toys. And I think, I think people are very upset with what's happening in Ukraine and people are very unhappy with Putin and with his, his immediate inner circle. And if this is a way that we can all contribute to trying to put some pressure and that's, that's our contribution, then, then great. Then we all feel like we're, we're contributing in some sort of a way. So it, it can be a fun sort of a game, but at the same time, it's something that's deadly serious. And I think most people recognize that. I, I wonder if you've thought at all about, right? So this is one specific project, but it's, it is a part of, I think, a broader online effort among people who are skilled at you know, open source analysis, taking things that are notionally available to anyone online, but you know you need to sort of sort through and make sense of to get a picture into different aspects of this conflict, right? There's people you know, who work at sites like Bellingcat who are doing a lot of open source work with the conflict itself. I wonder if you sort of thought at all about like what has been your experience participating in, in that world and you know, how do you see that world as you know, a, a component of this ongoing conflict? Yeah, open source has totally changed the world of intelligence, I think particularly even just in the past five years, so much information now is available openly for people to find. But like you said, it takes people who know and understand the information that they're receiving, knowing and understanding how to find that information and what to make of it. Uh, and also how to know if it's good or not. How do you source information and know that it's coming from a reliable source? And given my background in intelligence, but also my background as a journalist, I've always worked professionally. All my work has been with information and how to find it and how, and what to do with it once I have it and making sure that it's reliable information. So yes, the information is open to anybody, but it's not sort of any random person could go and put all of this together. It does take a certain amount of understanding the information and putting it putting it into a, a paradigm or a narrative that can be understood. But there is so much of it now that anybody who wants to become that kind of an expert can. And so as, you know, as the effort and the war continue to go on and sort of seem to be an increasing unfortunate fixture of, of life and of the news, what are, what are the types of things you're looking out for, right? As you continue this project, are you expecting an increase in movement? Are you sort of, are there particular ships that you're looking out for? Are there, you know, what are, what for you is sort of the next phase of this project? 
Mostly I'm interested in watching where, where the yachts go next. If a number of them stay in the Indian ocean or in the United Arab Emirates, for example, then, you know, maybe that affects what happens with policy next, because of course, you know, authorities in Europe and the, in the UK and the United States can then put pressure on those countries and, and those countries then have to make a decision. Do they want to accept those sanctioned individuals and their assets being in their countries, or are they ready to sort of join our coalition and join on our side for what, for what we're trying to, to do in the war? So I think diplomatically and in terms of foreign policy, I think that will be very interesting in terms of watching sort of where everybody starts to land on the grander, the, the bigger chessboard of things. Then just on a more practical matter, I'm interested in what happens to the boats. <laughs> I mean, now I'm pretty invested in these yachts. <laughs> so I do want to know what happens because the, the, the infrastructure and the know-how to take care of them is, is here in, in Europe and in the United States. And so you know, what do you do with a, a Eclipse, for example? Eclipse is Abramovich's other yacht. And um, we're not sure yet. It's here in the Mediterranean now. We're not sure yet where it's heading. But it, after it underwent refurbishment recently, it's now estimated to be worth $1 billion. That's a lot of money, even for an oligarch. And so what happens to this ship? Does it get detained somewhere? Does it go somewhere? Even if it makes it to Vladivostok, for example, then what? There's nobody in Vladivostok who knows how to take care of a ship like that. And so just practically speaking, what will happen to these, these yachts? I'm, I, that I'm very curious about. And I think that is a perfect place to end. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan, and the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patihal. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast if you use a podcast service that allows you to do so, and share us widely. As always, thanks so much for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.